Hey guys, welcome to Relatable. Hope everyone's having a wonderful day. Today, I am talking to Victor Davis Hansen. You guys know him. We had him on the podcast last year, which ended up being an extremely popular episode because the guy is brilliant. He is so interesting. He seems to know everything about everything. And so my ability to kind of hone in on just one subject or a few subjects to talk to him about in a matter of 30 minutes is limited. But I try today. I try it. We're going to talk about his new book, The Dying Citizen. It is not going to end as a depressing conversation about how America is over or anything like that. It might start out, it might start out that way, talking about all of the things that we are enduring, but we end this conversation um, with the hope of positive change. But first, he is going to analyze in the very smart way that he does um, many of the issues that America uh, Americans are uniquely facing today and how we got here. Then we'll talk solutions at the end. So Without further ado, here is our friend, Victor Davis Hansen. Okay, thank you so much for joining us again. You recently wrote The Dying Citizen. Can you tell us why you wrote the book? Well, I wrote it uh, mostly in 2019 and 2020, right before the uh, outbreak of the virus. And then I tried to update the Mm. bad year 2020 and 21 in an epilogue an update at the end. But so whatever was going on now that it's as depressing was going, I, I tried to cite things that were the precursors of the mess we see today. And they, they were open borders, tribalism, or the return of identity politics, wokeness, and the decline of the middle class. So I, these were organic forces, I felt, that were undermining citizens and reminding us how fragile citizenship was. And most people throughout history across time and space had been, you know, subjects or slaves or just residents without particular rights uh, and control of their own elected officials, if they had any. And then I also, in the second half of the book, called it the postmodern assault on citizenship. And those were people who were political activists, legal scholars, academics, who wanted to change the system. And one thing, one chapter is on the unelected. These are the two million people in the federal government. But specifically, the hierarchy in Washington and the DOJ, IRS, FBI, CIA, Pentagon, who exercise, I don't know, I guess we'd say judicial, executive and legislative power all in one person. And then I had final two chapters, one on what I call the evolutionaries. These are people who don't believe human nature is static, that it's fluid, it's mobile, it can be improved if you give government enough power. And they want to change the system because it hasn't given them the results they wanted. And whether it's the Electoral College or the filibuster or the nine-person Supreme Court or the 50-state union, they want to change the system according to their own ideas, even though a lot of these traditions and customs and even constitutional law have 180, 233 years precedence of traditions. And then finally, the globalists. These are mostly bicoastal elites that really profited with trade on a global scale in the 21st century, both with the EU and the East Coast mostly, and with Asia and the West Coast. And they believe that they're citizens of the world, that harmony of the economy on a global scale means we can have political centralization, 
the Davos elite or the UN or whatever the particular transnational organizations organization we talk about, it should have precedence over the American voter, especially those voters in the heartland that sort of missed out the elite felt on globalization due to their own culpability. Right. That's a book. <laughs> right, right. Well, thank you so much. And I'm interested to know, you started this in 2019. You said that you've tried to update it. Do you think all the problems that you just listed got worse in 2020 and in 2021? Or do you think that they just kind of became more pronounced? Certainly what you just said, that that last part mm. about the global elites really thinking that um, – you know, we can have this, everyone becomes a global citizen. No one really cares about nationalistic pride and certainly nationalism they see as an affront to their ideology and their goals. That, I think, has become more pronounced over the past couple of years. A lot of, you know, regular people have maybe mm -hmm. opened up their eyes when they hear language like the Great Reset and things like that. But from your perspective, have you seen some of these issues worsen over the past couple of years. Yeah, if I could use a simile, I think we had been implanting improvised explosive devices in our society for years. And by that, I mean the open border was an old issue. And so was the declining economic and political power of the middle class. And so was identity politics. It was increasing. Uh, people were identifying by their tribe as essential to who they were rather than incidental. And the other things I mentioned, like the growth of the, the unelected or the attempt to change constitution. But what happened in 2020-21 is we had a, a blasting caps that set these things off. And maybe we would have survived one or two of them, like maybe COVID and mm. maybe Maybe the lockdown, the first in our history, a national lockdown that put people inside their homes, dependent on their computers for news or their televisions, which wasn't unbiased. And maybe we could have survived the first artificially induced recession and huge drop in GDP and unemployment because of that lockdown. Maybe we could have survived the George Floyd, uh, post-George Floyd death rioting. Uh, but I don't know. But when you added on to that, it was an election year and the hatred of Donald Trump and legitimate concerns that certain state legislatures rules about voting were overturned. And then you add that 102 million people voted absentee. You add that to the those straws to the camel's back and it just collapsed. And so we weren't as resilient as we had been to withstand these pressures. But on the other hand, we've never had such a perfect storm of pressures before. So it's hard to know cause and effect, but I do think uh, something about the election year, something about the hatred and the bias of the media toward Trump, and then something about the way in which we voted made the COVID and George Floyd problems just be overwhelmed the system that was weakening anyway. Okay, guys, quick break from my conversation with Victor Davis Hanson to tell you guys about our one and only sponsor for today. And that, of course, is Good Ranchers. So you missed the opportunity to give Good Ranchers as a Christmas gift. Maybe you're still on the fence. That's fine. Now is the opportunity to give the gift of Good Ranchers to yourself or someone you love for their New Year's resolution. Maybe they've got a resolution to cook more at home or to eat healthier meals. And Good Ranchers makes it really easy to do that because 
because they send better than organic chicken or craft beef right to your front door. You don't have to go to the grocery store and pick out the meat. They are ensuring that you get high quality meat from exclusively American farms. They are on a mission to revitalize the farming industry in the United States that has been completely wrecked over the past several years because we rely on imported meat. So if you care about that, if you want to put America first, if you care about American farmers, if you want to support an American company, Good Ranchers, that is run not just by conservatives, but also by Christians, then why not buy your meat from Good Ranchers? All you got to do is go to goodranchers.com slash Allie. When you do, you save $20. You also get free express shipping. You can also subscribe, get that box of meat every month to your front door. It really does save you time. We use Good Ranchers almost every night and we love it. Go to goodranchers.com slash Allie or use promo code Allie for $20 off and free express shipping. That's goodranchers.com slash Allie, goodranchers.com slash Allie. Do you think that it's accurate to describe the current Democratic Party or just progressives in general as anti-citizen, anti-citizenship, or certainly national citizen? And if so, how do you how do you think that plays out in some of the policies that they put forth? Yeah, yeah well, I think that when I say citizen, what what distinguishes the citizen from a resident? And there was there was always about six or seven unique privileges and responsibilities that the citizen took on. One was, of course, uh, he served in the military. She served in the military. Another was they were uniquely eligible for federal support. Another was they alone in the modern era voted in elections. They alone held office. They alone could go to and from their own country without asking permission. They had passports. But if you look, and they could hold office, as I said, but if you look at that, I can't think of a single privilege that's left other than holding office. Now we hear that illegal aliens, they've been doing it in California for years, are going to vote in municipal and state uh, elections. Not, maybe not yet because it's against the law in federal elections. So we are eroding the idea of citizenship. And that's because mostly of numbers. When you look at what Bill or Hillary Clinton said at the 1996 Democratic Convention during his reelection nomination, it was pretty, it was tougher than anything Donald Trump said about borders. They were talking about illegal alien as a plague, alien uh, influxes as a plague upon the land that they had to enforce the law. Chuck Schumer outdid them. But when you have uh, 24, 25 million, maybe people here illegally residing or 2 million People are scheduled to come across in the 12 months of Joe Biden's uh, first year in the presidency. Or you have 50 million people who were not born in the United States, legal residents and illegal. Or in California, 27% of the population was not born in the United States. Then these policies reflect that in a democracy, they reflect that constituency. And so the Democratic Party says, you know, with open borders, it's a long-term investment. People come across. They have small children, they get amnesties, or they vote in local elections, or they become naturalized. They're wards of the state when they arrive. They feel indebted. They they have fealty to us. It's a good investment. We flipped California from red to blue. There'll never be a Reagan. There'll never be a Pete Wilson. There'll never be a George Tukmasian. There'll never be a Arnold Schwarzenegger governor again. That's the model, and they flipped Nevada, New Mexico, maybe Arizona and Texas, surely Colorado, maybe Georgia. So in their view, 
open borders are deliberate mm. and they feel it's a long term strategy to change the system. If they can't change the laws and they can change the demography and, and they're very open about it. I don't think there's any um, effort to hide what they're doing. But they do. They will argue, for example, they always go after Tucker Carlson for um, for spreading some kind of conspiracy theory that they think is or that they call white nationalist that they would say, oh, he's arguing that they're trying to that we're trying to reduce the white population and replace it with a brown population. But like you said, they are open that demographic change is good for the Democratic Party and open borders lead to that demographic change. Um, And so why do they kind of play this game, do you think, of simultaneously trying to hide and obscure that strategy from happening and calling anyone who calls it out racist while simultaneously they are open about it. They they want this. They want citizenship to be more flux for the reasons that you just listed. Well, we should remember people like Joy Reid celebrate uh, any statistic that shows the so-called white population is declining proportionally. So I think they're they're happy about it. But you're right. Some of them try to be disingenuous about it. And that's because when you look at the polls and you ask in any poll, left or right or international Pew poll, any poll, and you ask Americans, do you support illegal immigration and open borders? They uh, 65% say no. I think it's 65, 68% oppose Joe Biden's policies. And remember, these are not just so-called white citizens, African-Americans, Mexican-Americans overwhelmingly object to uh, open borders. Now, why would that be? Because the Mexican-American diaspora is starting to follow 19th century Italians who were poor Catholic from Southern Europe, faced discrimination, voted entirely democratic. And then guess what? As they became more prosperous, assimilated, intermarried, integrated, they became politically hard to gauge. We're starting to see that right now along towns mm-hmm. in Texas, and we're starting to see it here in California in the San Joaquin Valley. And so they're very they're very worried that uh, if they say we want more people to come in and we want like these open borders, then there's no public support for it. So what they do is to their own base on CNN or MSNBC or in conventions or in literature, yes, they say we have to have open borders and they're even candid about why. But when they get out in the public domain for a larger audience, they like to say, you know, that that mm-hmm. they are, if you, uh, Secretary Mallorca says the border is just as secure as it ever was. And, uh, you know, they, they lie about it. And, right. And that's just part. But they do that on almost everything now, whether it's inflation or they either ridicule the voter and say, oh, you know, worries about inflation are just for high class people. Yeah. Or, I'm, or if you talk about disruptions in the supply chain, they say, oh, you didn't get your treadmill, ha ha, yeah. as if it's an elite thing. Right. Or oil, when you say, we should, can't we pump the two million barrels we lost under Biden's direct, oh, that's hilarious. So they ridicule people or they lie or they do both. Yeah. Because they're not affected by it. They're not affected by these policies that they put in place. It's the same thing with defunding the police or eliminating single-family housing zones. The people that are most affected by those policies are not the people putting the policies in place. They are affected 
they're they're mostly affecting working class and poor people. It's also like Representative Cori Bush from Missouri when she was asked about the hypocrisy of her wanting to advocate for defunding the police, even while she spends, I think it was two hundred thousand dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars on personal security. Um, she basically said, "Look, I'm I'm different. I've got di- I've got different threats. I am you know a public figure, and so you do see that kind of belittlement, yeah. that open condescension." Um, from them when it comes to specifically, like you said, open border policy. My question would be, what changed? You talked about Bill Clinton and how strong they were, at least rhetorically, when it came to when it came to immigration policy. When did the Democratic Party realize, oh, well, if we're if we're less strict on this border policy, and we actually let more illegal people come in, uh, then that politically benefits us. When did that shift happen and why? I think there were two things. Short term, they looked at California and they had said California is where the conservative moment really started with Reagan. And they looked at, you know, it had four very popular Republican governors, maybe even Arnold Schwarzenegger could be included among them. But then they started to look in the 21st century they said, you know, when Jerry Brown got reelected and and there's no statewide officers in California and the Latino vote is now 70 percent Democratic and we don't we have super majorities in both state legislatures. And at one point there were only seven out of 53 Republican House seats that were um, from California. And they said we hit on something. This is a single party state. And so, therefore, we don't have to be as careful about opening borders because we all on the Democratic left side realize what we did with California. Because 42 percent of the the demographic are now Latino in California. And then they did something even more importantly. And I think it's entirely underappreciated. I talk about in the book is that they took this word diversity that was kind of an arcane academic word for people that were not white. That's what it really meant in the academic world where I had to work. But Barack Obama mainstreamed it. And he said, you know what, class doesn't matter anymore. You can be a victim as long as you're not white. Hmm. So all of a sudden, the old binary of blacks at 12% and whites at 88, and maybe Latinos at six or seven, it just grew enormously. So all of a sudden I noticed in the university that people who were very wealthy from the Punjab or people who were very wealthy were immigrating from South Korea or Native Americans that had entirely different issues. Uh, Everybody was now 33% victimized Mm. and it had nothing to do with class. So the old Democratic Party that used to talk about class, 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 didn't want to touch it. And they found that you could be a permanent victim. In the old days, you know, as things got better, people got out of the middle class. And so they got to the upper middle class. But now the Democrats on the left were saying, it doesn't matter. You can be Oprah and your $90 million mansion talking to Meghan Markle and Mm -hmm. her $15 million mansion, both in Montecito, and they can trade stories how victimized. Or Michelle can walk out of her Martha Vineyard estate and say, you know, I'm worried about my girls in a racist society. Uh, And so LeBron can, you know, be a lackey and be a, a billionaire due to Chinese money and the oppression that goes on in China. And yet he can put on his Malcolm X classes and look like he's reading and right. he can start saying very racist things, attacking the police, but he's the victim. 
And mm. so that was a, a very powerful change in the Democratic Party. Then finally, besides uh, the end of class considerations, the Democratic Party, let's face it, it's the party of the very poor and the very wealthy, the subsidized poor. And when you look at any indication, uh, congressional districts by income, zip codes by income, per capita income of registered Democrats, even with the poor included versus Republicans, it's it's radically flipped. The Republican Party is the party of the lower middle, the middle middle and the upper middle class. And the Democratic Party is the very wealthy and the very poor. So the, and the Democratic way of thinking is we really don't need that much public opinion anymore. All we need to do is use our vast financial resources to help change the system, change the system, and it will give the results in a way that we don't have to count on necessarily having issues that resonate with 51% of the people. And what do I mean by that? I'm talking whether it's George Soros and funding, pouring money into what were once obscure district attorney campaigns in big cities. Nobody even thought that would happen or secretly or quietly or under the radar changing the state voting laws and careful, careful uh, uh, swing states. Or maybe you could say Mark Zuckerberg infusing $414 million in select precincts and swing states. So they had ways of massaging the vote that were legal, but they reflected the vast resources. So they were the very wealthy. And you're absolutely right. They've never the wealthy Democrat is never subject to the consequences of his own ideology. So whether it's living in, or in gated estates in Palo Alto or Menlo Park and then damning the, the uselessness of walls on the border or just talking about we don't need water transfers for agriculture. That's so 19th century, but we do need Hetchetchy water for the Bay Area from the Sierra. Almost every issue it's predicated on the idea that remember when John Kerry said that when he was attacked for using a private jet and when he was going to Davos and all over the world, he said, I need to, I need this so I right. can more effectively be an advocate for reducing the carbon uh, <laughs> footprint of my private jet. And so that's who they are now. They're very wealthy people and they're sort of like uh, the best image I always have is a medieval society. You know, I'm a historian and, and you look at Europe between 800 and 1400 and that's exactly what it was it was a feudal elite and a keep and then there were peasants there weren't citizens right and that's what that's what they are doing they absolutely despise the middle class they always have but they feel the middle class lacks the romance of the poor and it doesn't mm. have the taste of the, of the rich and they just mm. can't stand it you can really see it when you have, remember the cnn reporter went to a trump rally and he said i have more teeth than everybody put together wow and, and yes. then you and Anderson, Coop, and Anderson Cooper said something similar. I think it might have been after January 6th. I, I don't know. But he said, oh, um, they're just going to stay at the Holiday Inn and eat Olive he Garden. Did. Yeah, he did. And and Peter Stroke said he went to Walmart. And you could smell them. And then we had all those. Uh, Joe mm -hmm. Biden said these are chumps or dregs. You know, Obama started it with deplorables. And then um, – Hillary really trumped that with deplore. Um, he said clingers, excuse me. And then yeah. Hillary trumped that with deplorables and irredeemable. Right. Right. So we do see that kind of antipathy towards the working class. And I guess that answers a, a lot of what you just said, answers a question that I think so many people are asking about the Biden presidency right now. Is that why are they doubling down on things that are not 
ending well that are not having a good effect? Like, why hasn't he gone back on his energy policy that is obviously making gas prices rise? Why do they seem to be actually maybe okay with inflation? Why are they exacerbating our economic problems by trying to push forth this unconstitutional vaccine mandate? Why does it seem like they just don't care that the results of their actions are not good? And I guess you answer that in saying that they don't really need the consent or the approval of most Americans. But my question is, okay, what are they going to do, though, for the midterms? What are they banking on? Why are they doing so many things that are so widely unpopular, knowing that there will be another election? Yes. So I have they have two points of view. One is their optimistic and one is their fallback position. Their optimistic view is they're in a, a media bubble to begin with. But as as Ben Rhodes said in the Obama administration, the media are 30 somethings. They know nothing. And we create echo chambers. So they feel mm-hmm. they manipulate and can count on the media. So and we just talked about some examples. Inflation is just a, a, the media will take care of it. They'll just say it's a high class worry. Borders, they'll just report that everybody's whipping, the Border Patrol is whipping innocents on the border. They've already yep. done that for us. Uh, Afghanistan, they'll say that it was one of the greatest logistical successes in our departure, not a, an absolute humiliating defeat. Um, you know, they can say the media Rittenhouse, he, he is a white supremacist and he shot down three upstanding heroic people. He should and he should have, if he had any guts, hit him with his fist. Or the Waukesha uh, murders, it's a self-piloted SUV. It has nothing to do with race. So they, they count on that media narrative. And they've been very successful at that. I mean, six out of the last seven popular votes, they have won at the presidential level, even though... Uh, at the local and state level, they haven't done very well. And, you can, and even we haven't we being the conservatives or Republicans have not won 51 percent of the popular vote since 1988, wow. since George W. Bush beat Dukakis. But we've been very successful at local where the national media is not as important. And Obama lost over 1100 state and local seats when he was president, even though the media loved him. So that's their position that they're going to do this as ideologues. And uh, the media is going to make the necessary judgment. Now, when that starts to fail and the the media starts to be completely discredited and it gets worried that, you know, they've got nuts on there that are losing market share because they are corporations, then their attitude changes a little bit. It's it's kind of like a Leninist position. We don't have public opinion. We know that even the media can't lie anymore for us. But we do have two years where we have control of the go- all the branches of government, maybe not the courts completely, but we do have a legislative and president. And we're going to ram this stuff through and we're going to institutionalize it. So they're going to run up in this four, two years at least, they're going to run up another five to seven trillion dollars in debt. That's good at, from their way of thinking. That's modern monetary theory, more inflation that erodes the power of capital that have it and gives it to people who don't. They're going to cut back severely on fracking, horizontal drilling, pipeline construction. That will take years to redress. They have really set back racial relations 50 years. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. They have made race in, uh, essential to who Americans are, not incidental. They think that's going to be institutionalized with critical race theory and stuff. So in their way of thinking, okay, we were so humane and so morally superior that these dregs and their deplorables didn't appreciate us, if that's what they want. And even the media couldn't couldn't snap these people out of their stupor. So we're going to push this through and we got a year to do it. And then we're going to laugh at them because it's going to take years and years uh, to correct. And if we're successful in getting rid of the filibuster or getting rid of the electoral college or getting more Supreme then Court justices, won't matter. then it won't matter. Yes. I don't know if they're going to be able to pull it off or not, because a lot of these Democratic uh, House members and people in the Senate, few of them look at those polls and they say, you know what? Joe Biden's going to be gone, but I'm I'm going to be gone too, and I'm younger, and I have a career. And so you're starting to see a few people, but it's not really going to hit them until the polls get lower. I mean, when if Biden gets down to 33, 32, and people start openly ridiculing them like they're beginning to do, and I think that is on the horizon, then I think you'll see a mass defection before the midterm. Right. Do you think that... That will allow the country. I mean, it's just one it's just one election. Next year is just one election. But do you think that that could spell any kind of course correction for the country? I mean, your 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 book is titled The Dying Citizen, but it's not the dead citizen. Mm -hmm. So is there hope for turning things around? It almost sounds like from your second answer, talking about everything that America has endured, just the burdens that have been placed on America, America's cohesiveness over the past couple of years. It kind of sounds like you do not think that we can course correct. I'm optimistic, actually. And I'll tell you why. Uh, Most of the people that I speak to that are mobilizing and getting upset about things are young people. Mm. And another group, because I live in a community that's about 95% Mexican-American. And I think about a third of them are here illegally from Mexico. And they're not from northern Mexico, as happened in the 1950s. They're from southern Mexico, the impoverished indigenous peoples part of Mexico. And I watched that group vote consistently Democratic my entire life. And they're not now. Forty five percent of that group, according to uh, uh, exit polls, voted to recall Gavin Newsom. That was higher than uh, Mm. the white vote. And when you look at Mexican-American males, it was over 50 percent. And it's because when you have open borders and you have people coming from Oaxaca into your schools and there's gang members, they beat up people who don't speak Spanish who are Mexican-American. They increase criminality. They don't follow the law. They burden local uh, tax bases. So a lot of people say to, when you talk to them, I'm speaking to somebody who have Mexican-American members in my own family, and, you know, why do people have to wait two hours in a dialysis clinic when somebody from Oaxaca just walks across the border and then the line gets twice as long and there's not enough facilities to handle that. So these are real concerns. We saw it in Texas as well along the border. So I see groups that the Democrats count on as constituents and they're getting they're getting uh, very angry. The other group is, as you probably know, as, a, as I, I think as I remember your uh, a mom yourself, and is that 
younger moms in suburbanites, and I have a daughter probably about your age with three children, one of whom has special needs, is that while she is apolitical and has been apolitical, when she gets the school shut down and she sees the deterioration in her special needs daughter, right. or when she goes to a beach in California and somebody comes up to her from the left and screams at her that her five-year-old who's severely disabled doesn't have a mask on and starts berating her, then mm. or she goes to the park and she sees needles and her child is worried about, she's worried about whether she can step on a needle or the homeless people across the street set a fire and the wind blew toward our house. What I'm getting at is we're, we're reaching the point of a kind of a systems collapse. And a lot of people who are either apolitical or just independent or voted Democratic because they were tired of Donald Trump's tweets, they're starting to say, you know what, this is crazy. I get on a plane and I don't know if I'm going to get to my destination. I go to the store and I can't buy a turkey. I want to buy a car. Instead of finding a car, they call me up. The car dealer wants to buy my used car. And I can't afford uh, gasoline. And what's happened? It all happened in a year. So I, I think right. there's a lot of constituencies that the Republican Party never counted on that are looking toward the Republican Party. And I just hope that we don't go back um, to Romneyism, that you know that the Republican Party says, well, we've got to get Paul Ryan back here, because <laughs> if they do that, they're gonna. That's suicidal. They need to be a populist, nationalist, conservative, culturally conservative party that appeals on class affinities uh, to people that are not all white. And if they can do that, they're going to be even more conservative than they were under Romney or McCain or the Bushes. Absolutely. I could not agree with you more. And I would love to have you back to talk about that last part that you just talked about, what Republicans can do better. Because if Republicans haven't won the popular vote since 1988, yes, a lot of that has to do with the media. But OK, that's that is what it is. And so what can Republicans do to appeal to a wider base that the Democrats may be losing? Yeah. That's a big question. I'd love for you to answer yeah. it in the future. For now, I'll let you go. Thank you so much. We will include the link to The Dying Citizen in the description of this episode. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to come on. Thank you for having me. Thank you. 